The Kissel boys were born and raised in what we used to think as the quintessential American family, like something that you would watch on some wholesome sitcom. They were as competitive as they were ambitious, and those qualities would take both brothers on their very own unique, successful journeys in life. But the younger of the two, Robert, he always seemed to have an edge on older brother Andrew. He was taller, more athletic, more popular, more social, friendlier. Things simply just came easier. Robert was the brother who followed the rules. He maneuvered wisely, cautiously, thoughtfully. Andrew preferred the quick and easy, the fastest way to winning, even if it wasn't exactly the right way. It didn't matter because getting to the finish line first was the only thing that mattered. The irony is the manner in which both of these brothers would come to meet an equally tragic end. Three years and thousands of miles apart in ways and for reasons to this day remain mysterious and nearly impossible to reconcile. This is a very special vacation series presentation of California Dreaming, the tale of the Kissel family curse. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this multi-part series entitled The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. It is a vacation series. The story takes place partly in the northeastern part of the United States and partly in Hong Kong. This case was recommended to me by listener Nate B., who also sent me a book entitled A Family Cursed by Kevin McMurray. I am reading the book as I am going along here, but also referencing a few articles online, particularly a 2006 article in New York Magazine. This is the third part of this multi-part series. If you have not listened to episodes 183 and 184, which is part one and two, then you'll want to pause this here, listen to those first, and then come back to this. Or you might want to wait until all parts have dropped so you can binge, binge, binge the whole thing. Either way, just know that I'm bringing you this entire story eventually to you as quickly as I possibly can. We left off last time with both Andrew and Robert Kissel at pivotal points in each of their lives. Robert's marriage to Nancy was not only falling apart, but Nancy had grown distant and cold, and he was suspecting that she was giving him some sort of drug to either knock him out or to kill him. And as for Andrew, the shortcuts and the easy ways out that he got so used to taking throughout his life had finally caught up with him when he was caught siphoning off money to the tune of $4.7 million from the property co-op that he had invested in and as he served as their treasurer on the board of directors. Even though he had reached terms for repayment, it didn't necessarily mean that he was out of hot water just yet, nor did it seem to be slowing down his lavish spending and living in excess. So we will pick up our story from there. So in order to get a little bit of insight with what was going on with Nancy, or at least what may have been going on with her, I'm going to have to have you reach back to Nancy's wedding. Remember I told you that her first choice for her maid of honor, Allison, was unable to be there because she was chronically sick at the time. So another friend named Bryna, who Nancy had met when the two were working as waitresses in New York City in the mid-80s, 
had been the maid of honor instead. Bryna was about 13 years older than Nancy, and it was around the time that Nancy and Robert got married that Bryna herself got married and moved to California. So long before Nancy and Robert had moved to Hong Kong, Nancy and Bryna's friendship had pretty much been relegated to infrequent visits that Bryna would make to the East Coast when she had a chance to visit with her family. She would always set aside time to visit with Nancy too. But the friends did call and email on a fairly regular basis. Over time, Bryna did kind of notice that when they did talk, Nancy didn't really bring up much about Robert. It wasn't that she didn't have anything to say. The friends always had lots of things to talk about. But Bryna kind of noticed that Nancy always seemed to have to go out of her way to ask about him. After all, she considered him a friend, too, that after he married her best friend and she liked the guy. So naturally, she wanted to know how he was doing. Now, there are a number of things that Nancy could have said to her friend to address it and move on. You know, she could have been like, oh, you know, Robert's doing what Robert does. He's busy at work. He got a promotion. He's really focused on his career. It's a lot of stress and pressure, yada, yada, yada. But Nancy didn't really opt for anything like that either. When Bryna asked about him, Nancy would tell her that she didn't want to talk about it. Now, for me... That would only make my curiosity even worse to be told by my best friend that she doesn't want to talk about her husband. I just thought it was kind of weird that Nancy would say something like that that would raise more questions than answers when all she really needed to say was, oh, yeah, Robert's fine. You know, he's a workaholic and it is what it is. But no, Nancy specifically said that she didn't want to talk about it. Now, if it were me, I'd pry. But I'm sure Nancy would have quickly shut her friend down. And she just didn't want to get into the details. So what that tells me is that she has some level of self-awareness that what she's doing in the direction that she's heading is not in the best interest for herself or for her family or for her kids or for her life. Nancy's marriage, her finances, it's like, wait, what? You're unhappy with your tall, handsome, loving, wealthy, successful father of your children, worshiping the ground you walk on husband, and you're throwing it all away for a fling with the cable guy. Dreamers, I know that I'm having some judginess going on right now when it comes to the direction Nancy is going with this. I get it. And you want what you want. You feel what you feel. You love who you love. Nancy has every right in the world to walk away from her marriage with Robert and run off with the cable guy. Every right in the world. And I acknowledge that. But you know what? She didn't do that. She wanted her cake and she wanted to eat it too. At least that's kind of what it looks like. We all know how this story ends, so I kind of feel like I can be somewhat judgy about it. After all, she wasn't walking away from her marriage. She was turning her back on her marriage. She was going to hang out with the cable guy at his trailer on the other side of the river. But anyway, all of that's besides the point right now. Bryna is formulating her own conclusions about her friend as she's trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And she ended up attributing it to possibly being postpartum depression after Nancy and Robert had their third child in 2001. Now, there has never been any official diagnosis. This was all speculation and conjecture on Bryna's part. She was really trying to understand what her friend was going through. And when she started ticking boxes, it seemed like it was adding up to postpartum depression. Bryna began feeling like Nancy's marriage was on the brink of falling apart and that Nancy was growing more and more depressed as time wore on. 
And that's the conclusion that she reached. And then, of course, there was the SARS outbreak. Bryna was in contact with Nancy throughout the onset of the outbreak as Nancy made arrangements to get herself and the kids out of Hong Kong. So when all of that was happening, Bryna decided to back off the inquiries about Robert and to just do the best that she could to support Nancy as a friend as she worked through getting back to the United States. Okay, now maybe I'm being a little cynical here. And I know that we have almost 20 years of hindsight to look back on the SARS outbreak because we now have gone through COVID-19 and we're still going through it, which has impacted us and the entire world with millions of deaths. And it was so much worse of an outbreak than SARS. It pales in comparison. And Nancy's friend is so sympathetic about her having to flee Hong Kong with three kids in tow. And I'm just kind of like, she's got the means and she's got the money and all the help that she could possibly need and a beautiful vacation home that she owns that she can land in. I mean, Nancy's kind of privileged and I'm not feeling as sorry for her as maybe I could be or should be. I'm just not feeling it. It's like Nancy could not have had more at her disposal to make the entire ordeal go as smoothly and easy as possible for herself. While I understand her friend was being a friend, I guess, and feeling sorry for Nancy, and the whole thing just had me rolling my eyes. But again, we know how this story ends, so eye rolls justified, I say. At some point after Nancy had gotten back to the United States to dodge the SARS outbreak, Robert, he started reaching out to their friend, their mutual friend, at least he considered her a mutual friend, Bryna, as well. So she was able to get a little bit more of a balanced look at what was going on between them. Robert opened up about the troubles going on between himself and Nancy, and while Bryna had an idea that things were not well. She was somewhat taken aback based on what Robert was sharing with her as to just how awful things had become. Robert acknowledged that Nancy was her friend, but it was helping him to be able to reach out to her and open up about his feelings, and he had hoped that he would be able to continue to do so. And for me, Dreamers, the fact that Robert was trying to gauge his marriage and reaching out to people who were close to Nancy to try and see how he could approach this and what he could do to improve things, it was kind of telling to me because I'm not sure that there are many husbands out there that would go to that extent to try to understand what was going on with their wives. But Rhino was honest with Robert and she told him that she wanted Nancy to be able to trust her when she confided in her and that she wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do to be playing both sides. But like he had acknowledged, she was Nancy's best friend first. But at the same time, it was easy to see just how heartbroken Robert was. And she did feel bad for him. And she did want to be there for him as much as she could. So she said, yes, feel free to call her whenever he needed to talk. And he did. And he called a lot. And sadly, She'd even stated that she kind of regretted that she had agreed to allow him to freely open to her whenever he needed because he called frequently. But on the flip side of that, Bryna was finding out some stuff from Robert that Nancy wasn't exactly being forthcoming about, specifically that she had been having an affair. When Robert told Bryna that, she was floored. She had no idea that that was going on with Nancy. 
Now, in all the back and forth that Bryna was doing between Robert and Nancy, she had stuck to her promise to both of them that she would not share anything that each of them had said to her about the other. And she was upfront with Nancy about it too. She told her friend she was speaking to Robert also, but she would not be divulging anything either one of them told her in confidence. It would turn out to be a really uncomfortable situation to be in, but Bryna hung in there. Eventually, Bryna asked Nancy if she had something going on with someone else on the side, just to try to address the elephant in the room, I guess, without letting Nancy know that she had got that information from Robert. But Nancy flat out denied it. And Nancy's denial was so adamant that Bryna believed her immediately and decided that Robert's mind was just messing with him. She did not believe that there was an affair going on. However, as she tried to convince Robert that Nancy was not seeing anyone else, Robert told her, I know she is, and I can prove it. And Bryna was like, okay, I'm listening. And he told her that at that very moment, as they were talking on the phone, a private investigator that he hired was outside of their Vermont home, and he just watched as Mike Del Priore, the guy that they had hired to install cable, internet, and security systems in their home, had just shown up at 10 o'clock at night, Eastern Time, at his house. His investigator saw him go inside, and he was watching him and Nancy together inside their home. And Bryna just sat there on the phone in stunned silence. And Robert told her, yep, my PI is calling me now, I gotta go, and he hung up abruptly. Bryna was convinced that Robert was a little bit off his rocker at that point, hiring private investigators, spying in real time. What is going on here? This is crazy. But eventually, Bryna began thinking that maybe Robert was right. Why would he put himself through all of this if he did not believe Nancy's infidelity to be true? Bryna used to think so highly of Robert and Nancy as a couple. If anyone ever told her there was no such thing as a perfect relationship, she would be the first one to jump up and say, Wrong, my friends, Nancy and Robert, they've got it. They've got the perfect marriage. Now Robert had her doubting everything, even her own judgment, even her own friendship with Nancy, something that she had never questioned. They were best friends. They told each other everything, and everything was always the God's honest truth. At least Bryna used to think it was. Now she's getting all this information thrown at her from Robert, and it's caused her to question everything. Bryna knew that she had always been candid and forthcoming with Nancy. She never lied to her friend. Now, Bryna wondered how much of what Nancy had ever told her was true and how much of it were lies. And then at some point in all of this back and forth, in a particularly difficult conversation that Bryna had had with Robert, he confided something even more shocking than anything he had shared up to that point, that he was suspecting that Nancy was trying to poison him. Bryna's jaw dropped. She was at a loss for words. And there was nothing but silence on the line for she doesn't know for how long. In order to shift the tension in this conversation in jest, Bryna said, well, can you make sure that I'm in your will? And it got a pretty good laugh out of Robert. But getting back to the seriousness of what he was saying, Bryna told him that this simply cannot be the case. His mind has got to be playing tricks on him. Eventually, they got past that topic. And for the remainder of the conversations that Bryna and Robert would ever share, this was never brought up again. 
Bryna eventually reached a place where she accepted that she had been lied to for a very long time about very important things by her best friend. And it was hard to look past what she saw as a betrayal of their friendship. But she still wanted to give her best friend the chance to own up to it. After all, they had been so close for so long. Bryna thought that they were such good friends that Nancy should have known that she could have confided in her that she could have told her that she was having an affair and Bryna would not have passed judgment because she loved and cared about her. But the fact that Nancy didn't tell her is what bothered her so much. Best friend should be able to share everything. At least that's what she thought. Despite things going south in Robert's personal life, in his professional life, he was reaching new heights. In fact, by the middle of fall 2003, Robert was on his way to wrapping up the largest distressed debt deal Asia had ever seen. Robert was basically working around the clock to close this debt deal, a debt that was hovering in the ballpark of $14 billion. When I put that into the inflation calculator, that would come to about $20.3 billion today. This was going to be a massive haul for Merrill Lynch, not to mention millions upon millions of dollars in bonuses for Robert. What made this line of work so challenging at the time was the fierce competition. Robert wasn't the only Western finance guy to hit Asia when their economic market collapsed in 1997. It just so happened that Robert Kissel was a standout, and he had this ability to close deals seemingly effortlessly. The fact is, Robert poured all of his energy into his work, and it was paying off handsomely. There were times when Robert would find himself getting into conversations about his line of work with other finance guys working for other companies, his competition. Essentially, they would talk business and strategy in the direction that things were going in the Asian market. Some often thought that there were times when Robert was a little bit too forthcoming with his dealings, but it all started to seem as though Robert was beginning to let his guard down and people were pretty cool with that because he'd always been so to himself. Not only was he talking more about work than he really should have been, he was also opening up to colleagues about the decline of his marriage and his fears when it came to losing custody of his children. In fact, he confided in some that there was a side to Nancy that was of great concern to him. It was her savage temper. He did not like the way she was bringing up the kids. She was cruel and angry and distant, and he frequently received phone calls from their school that their children were regularly problematic in the class. So here we have a situation where Robert is faced with the reality that Nancy is not only not a good wife, she is not a good mother. And when he really pulled back and examined the situation as a whole, he came to realize that the only thing Nancy really excelled at was spending. And in the book, A Family Curse, it was said that despite Nancy being a good customer who spent a lot of money regularly at the local businesses and salons and whatnot near where she lived in Hong Kong, she did garner a reputation for being an asshole to people. If she cared about her marriage and family and kids as much as she did about shopping sprees, she and Robert would have been perfect. Towards the end of October of 2003, Robert was openly telling people that his marriage was essentially over. In fact, he was telling people that he was getting ready to file for divorce. And to make things easy, he wasn't going to fight for custody of the kids. He just wanted to make sure that he had fair and regular visitation, and he wanted to also make sure that Nancy and the kids would be taken care of financially. So clearly, Robert wanted to make the split as easy and amicable as possible. At least, that is what he's telling his friends. 
As Robert sat there and opened up to his friends and colleagues about his impending divorce, they could see that there was little in the way of emotion emanating from him. His face was kind of blank. He was worn and he was empty. He was void. He seemed to be a man who was accepting that this was the end of his 14-year marriage. And really, Robert's friends were kind of surprised at the revelation. I mean, they were all under the impression that Robert and Nancy were a solid couple. From the outside looking in, you've got a handsome couple, three beautiful kids, and Robert was exceedingly successful at work. They were a couple with the world in the palm of their hand. And I think I said it in the last episode that from all I've read about Robert Kissel, because we are in a world of true crime and we so often find ourselves delving into these stories about bad spouses, Nobody is perfect. And I'm sure Robert wasn't perfect either. But the only negative thing that I might have been able to find about the guy is the fact that he worked too much. And that could be straining on a relationship when one person is never home. It can get lonely and difficult managing the house and three kids for a mom and a wife. But again, these are people of means. And we know Robert and Nancy to have had domestic staff, housekeepers, nannies, whatever. To us, the average person, it kind of makes us wonder what the heck was going on with Nancy, who seemed to have it all with a devoted husband, but you just never know what's going on beneath the surface. Mental health issues, like her friend Bryna has suspected postpartum depression, so who knows? But still, I just have a really hard time wrapping my head around some of Nancy Kissel's actions, including her actions to come, but... Mental health is always hovering nearby when I think about it. For the time being, Robert needed to keep focused on his $14 billion debt buyout and put his marriage turmoil on the back burner, especially if he wanted this deal to go through. Halloween of that year, 2003, was falling on a Friday. Robert and his colleagues were going to use the weekend to decompress and get themselves mentally prepared for the upcoming work week when they were set to finalize this deal. That Sunday, November 2nd, the group of friends and co-workers got on the phone to talk, to lend support, to lift each other up, to wish everyone luck for the grueling week that was upon them. But one person was missing, and that one person who did not answer his phone was Robert Kissel. Bryna and Nancy had talked on the phone a couple of days before Halloween. Nancy told her about the plans that they had for the weekend for their youngest son's birthday party, which was going to be Halloween themed. The friends also talked about Nancy's upcoming trip to visit Bryna in California the week after Halloween. Nancy was going to spend some of her time with Bryna but she was also going to have a breast augmentation done as well. And I guess that kind of sounds like a Nancy move. The trip to California couldn't just be about seeing her friend. There had to be something in it just for her. I don't know. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You've been best friends for 20 years and you can't just visit to visit. Your best friend becomes a footnote when the main purpose of the trip is to get your boobs done. I really wouldn't want a visit like that with my friend who probably wouldn't really feel up to doing much of anything once the procedure was done and she was only going to be there for a week but anyway again I'm just being judgy about Nancy 
Well, the day after Bryna and Nancy had that phone conversation, Robert had his own phone conversation with Bryna too. And it was kind of to give her an update as to what was going on with Nancy. He mentioned that the affair with Mike was still going on despite Nancy insisting that it was over. In fact, as I mentioned previously, this was about the time that Robert discovered Nancy's second secret cell phone that she had used exclusively to communicate with her lover. And then there was this really big mix-up that he knew was going to cause even more attention and problems between himself and Nancy. It was that Robert had, in fact, told his attorney to go ahead and move forward in preparing the paperwork to begin the divorce proceedings. He had given his attorney instructions that when the paperwork was complete to fax it over to him at his offices at Merrill Lynch. But his attorney accidentally faxed them to Robert and Nancy's home fax machine. And Nancy saw the paperwork come through. Robert was going to have a sit down heart to heart talk about his plans for divorce but he hadn't anticipated her seeing the paperwork ahead of him speaking to her. Robert told Bryna, just as he had told his friends, that it was his intentions to make the divorce proceedings go as smoothly as possible. His intentions were to rent another apartment in the same complex there in Hong Kong. His first priority was making sure that the access to his children was simple and hassle-free. While the news of her friend's divorce was heartbreaking, Rhino was slightly relieved that it sounded like Robert was reaching a point of acceptance. She found his overall demeanor to be calm, like he was finally at peace with it. Another person Robert had spoken to and discussed the divorce with was his private investigator friend, Frank Shea. Now, Frank, as soon as he heard Robert say that the divorce was on, he was ecstatic. He had been genuinely worried that Robert would not survive his marriage to Nancy. I mean, it's a little extreme to think that your friend's wife is actually going to resort to murder. But like I said in the last part of the series, the line of work that Frank had dedicated his life to, being a cop, being a PI, the guy had seen some stuff. And he wouldn't put anything past anyone, not even murder. So it was welcome news that Robert had initiated the divorce proceedings. Throughout the month of October, Robert and Frank had kept in regular contact with one another via email. You see, Robert was a big New York Yankees fan. And it just so happened that that fall, the Yankees were the American League champions in the World Series, facing off against the National League champs, the Florida Marlins. So when a game is happening on the East Coast, I don't really know what time World Series games are usually played, but for argument's sake, let's just say 7 p.m. is like mid-game. So if a game is happening, say on a Monday at 7 o'clock Eastern time in the afternoon, in Hong Kong, it's going to be 7 a.m. Tuesday morning, like the next day morning, 12 hours ahead. So for a potential best of seven game series, most of the games are going to be happening when Robert was at work and he just didn't have access to any sort of media that would be reporting on the game. He couldn't watch it. So Frank would send Robert emails giving him the play by play. So the series ended up going to six games with the Marlins winning the series four to two. While the friends were disappointed, the only thing Robert wanted to do then was 
turn his attention towards basketball once he had heard the Yankees had lost. He sent an email message back to Frank insinuating that they should begin cheering on the Knicks. And that would be the last time that Frank Shea would ever hear from his friend Robert. A couple of days after the World Series email exchange, Frank reached out trying to get in touch with Robert. He called, he emailed, but Robert was unusually unresponsive. Well, Frank knew Robert was on the cusp of closing out a huge distressed debt deal, so he figured that he would hear back from Robert the next chance that he had. However, a week passed, and then another, and these were friends that never really went this long without talking, even if it was just emails. They were never out of touch for more than just a couple days. He again excused Robert's silence as being work and or travel related. But then something weird started to happen. Frank began getting delivery failed messages every time he sent an email to Robert's work email address. That did not look good. Why had Merrill Lynch shut down Robert's email account? So then came Thursday, November 6th. Remember Nancy was supposed to be getting ready to head to California in a few days to see her cosmetic surgeon and her BFF, Bryna. On that day, Nancy called Bryna and left a really weird message on her machine. Nancy said that she and Robert had gotten into a huge argument, that he attacked her and he beat her, and that he went after her, chasing her, trying to rape her. When Bryna heard the message, she was like, this doesn't sound right at all. None of this makes sense. Robert is not the type of person to behave that way. Bryna tried in vain for the rest of the day to get a hold of Nancy, but it wouldn't be until the next morning that Nancy finally answered the phone. Relieved to get a hold of her, Bryna asked if everything was okay. Was she okay? Is Robert okay? What the heck is going on? But all Nancy told her is that Robert had walked out on her. Nancy also told Bryna that she suffered some injuries, that she had some broken ribs. She was in the hospital the day before. When she got back, Robert was gone. Bryna pressed Nancy for more information, but Nancy clammed up and refused to talk any more about it. Then Nancy began complaining and cursing, telling Bryna that all her money was tied up in Robert's accounts and she didn't have any effing access to it. And before Bryna could say anything or ask any more questions, an exasperated Nancy said she had to go and abruptly ended the phone call. The following day, Nancy and Bryna talked on the phone again. Bryna wanted to mainly discuss the plans to fly to California as well as her breast augmentation because she was fairly certain that Nancy would not be able to go through with the procedure if she had broken ribs. But Nancy insisted that she was coming and to not cancel her appointment. After they hung up, Bryna was still left wondering and confused. What the hell happened to Robert? Where did he go? Where could he possibly have gone? Bryna tried calling his phone numbers several times, leaving a whole bunch of concerned and worried voicemails. She also sent him countless emails, but none of her calls, none of her messages were ever returned. It worried Bryna a lot because Robert was always very communicative. A few days later, Bryna received a very troubling phone call from one of Nancy and Robert's domestic staff, a woman named Maximina. 
Bryna was very confused to be receiving a call from her. The only time Bryna ever really spoke to any one of the Kissel's hired help was if they happened to answer the phone for either Nancy or Robert. So if Maximina had been initiating a call to her, it was very, very out of the ordinary. Maximina explained why she was calling, that there was something very bizarre going on at the Kissel home. First, she had noticed that a living room carpet had been rolled up and stuffed between a sofa and a wall, and that the carpet had been replaced with two brand new ones. And in addition to that, there was a putrid smell emanating from the rolled up carpet that was wedged behind the sofa. Then, a day or so later, Nancy had four men carry that rolled up carpet out of the home and brought down into a basement storage room. When Bryna was talking to Maximina, she could tell that the housekeeper was terrified of what was going on in the Kissel home. Bryna asked Maximina if she could go down to the basement to look and see if she could figure out what was going on with that carpet, but Maximina flat out refused to go down there. Bryna herself started to become very nervous and very afraid of what was going on. Her next phone call was to Robert's place of work, Merrill Lynch. Bryna got a hold of a co-worker of Robert's named David. He and Bryna did not know each other, but they knew of one another by way of their frequent conversations with Robert. Bryna told David that she was trying to get in touch with Robert, and David was like, yeah, get in line because all of us here are trying to get in touch with him too. Well, Bryna shared what she knew, that Nancy told her that Robert walked out, leaving their shared home alone. He didn't take his keys. He didn't take his car. And Nancy also told her that he didn't even bother putting on shoes or a jacket. Now, I did look up the average weather in Hong Kong that time of year, and it's usually warm, ranging from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, or in Celsius, about 18 to 23 degrees. So it's always warm and humid, and it rarely does the temperature ever dip below 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. So taking a jacket, not taking a jacket, eh, it didn't really mean much. Taking a car or not taking a car, okay, but not taking shoes, That's just dumb if Nancy wanted to tell a believable story. If I was Bryna and my friend told me that her husband walked out of the house with no shoes on and never came back, the first thing I would think to myself is, yeah, she killed him. Especially since Robert had already been telling Bryna that he thought Nancy was trying to. Bryna also mentioned to David that the Kissel's housekeeper, Maximina, had called her with even more disturbing information about a very foul-smelling living room rug that had been rolled up and stowed away in the basement, but she couldn't get Maximina to go down there and investigate. She told David that she was in California, that there wasn't anything she could do from there, but maybe he could try to sort things out. So David agreed that he would try and figure out what was going on. David managed to get in touch with Maximina. And after a brief yet disturbing call with her, David contacted the Hong Kong Police Department and reported Robert Kissel as missing. Bryna shared one final phone call with her longtime best friend, Nancy. She tried to sound as casual and as natural as possible, trying not to let on that she was incredibly uncertain about what was going on with her and Robert. Bryna told Nancy, look, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about Robert. I care and love the two of you deeply, and this is all so concerning. And all Nancy said was to be calm and that everything would be okay. 
that she was and always has cared for Robert. And without saying another word, Nancy hung up the phone. Only a few more hours would pass when Bryna received a devastating phone call from Maximina. Through her tears and cries, Maximina told Bryna that law enforcement had shown up at the Kissel home. Upon a search of the basement, they discovered Robert's body rolled up in a rug. He had been beaten and bludgeoned about the head to death. Still that same week after Halloween, the first week of November, the news of Robert's death had reached the rest of the Kissel family stateside. By then, the only members of the family were Father Bill, Sister Jane, and Brother Andrew. Remember Lance Del Priore, the owner of Prime Focus Communications, who had fired his brother Mike for having that ongoing affair with Nancy, one of their best clients, the Kissel family? Well, Lance was at home with his wife. They were still going strong. They were sitting at home, minding their own business, when their phone rang. Lance picked it up, and on the other end of it, all he heard was, Your brother killed my brother. It took Lance a minute to realize what he was hearing. And the only thing he could mutter was, wait, what? In the next moment, Andrew said that he really couldn't say much else for the time being. But Lance, he flew off the handle and he demanded to know what the hell was going on. What do you mean, my brother killed your brother? Are you just trying to be cryptic or is this some sort of weird joke? I mean, of course, Lance knew all about the affair and it had pretty much cost him his relationship with his brother. Even so, Lance was under the impression that the affair had fizzled out, at least that's what Mike was insisting, but apparently he was wrong. Finally, Lance asked Andrew, desperately wanting to know, Are you serious? Where is Robert? Is he okay? Is he really dead? And Andrew finally told him the truth. He's gone, and it was Nancy who killed him. Lance was beside himself. He didn't know what to say. It had been more than two months since he had fired Mike from the company and stopped speaking to his brother altogether. Andrew told Lance that his attorney was telling him that he needed to keep quiet for right now. And from there, the phone call ended. By this time, the patriarch of the Kissel family, Bill, he had retired and gone down to Florida like lots of people, either that or they go to Florida to be weird. In Bill's case, he's there hoping to live out his golden years in peace. But it is not going to be peaceful and it's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. He did take up with a new love interest since his wife had passed away 14 years earlier. Bill and his girlfriend were set to host a get-together with some of their friends on this particular evening. But Bill had decided to take a power nap before getting ready for his company that was coming over. As he slept, he had a very disturbing dream where he saw his son Robert laying face down on the floor of a room, dead. The dream jolted Bill awake, and once he realized it was just a dream, he managed to get up and carry on with his afternoon. Bill's get-together with his friends went on as planned, but sometime later that afternoon, early evening, as his little party was in full swing, Bill's phone rang. He went to a quiet place to answer it. It was his oldest son, Andrew. Bill nearly keeled over in shock, hearing from Andrew, because the guy never ever called. 
The habit of staying out of touch with dad stayed the same throughout Andrew's entire life and his relationship with Bill. So when Bill picked up the phone and Andrew identified himself, he immediately filled with anxiety. This just couldn't be good. And it wasn't. Andrew had to break the news to his dad over the phone that Robert was dead and that he had been murdered. Bill Kissel lost his footing. He lost his ability to stand. He crumpled to the ground. 911 was summoned and Bill Kissel, who was 75 years old by then, was rushed to the emergency room and admitted to the hospital for observation. He was discharged the next day and he was on the next flight to Hong Kong. Bill, along with his girlfriend, arrived in Hong Kong and they were actually given a ride to the hotel that they were staying at by the Hong Kong police. I didn't know that was a thing, but it's kind of nice, I guess. In fact, the police there had taken an abundance of caution when it came to Bill Kissel's arrival. They were overly concerned about his safety and privacy, particularly because of this being the murder of a Westerner in their country. They had made the arrangements for Bill's accommodations, even going so far as listing him under an alias so no one would know that there was another Kissel in the country to ensure that the media and reporters would not be able to track them down. This was going to be big, huge news in Hong Kong. Robert Kissel being murdered there. Big news. Once Bill got checked in and his things up at his hotel, he requested that he be taken to see Robert. So he was brought to the morgue by one of the senior police inspectors. Bill Kissel arrived. He was brought in. He stood over Robert's body. It was covered with kind of a vinyl type sheet the inspector wanted to be honest with bill his son had spent days rolled up in a rug and he had been beaten about the face and head and the decomposition was pretty advanced and so he strongly advised bill to not have them pull that sheet down implored him to just keep the last memories of when he last saw his son as the ones to hold on to. I don't know for sure if Bill decided to take a look for himself at Robert's remains. As the story went, he was just advised by the inspector to let Robert be. Bill Kessel held a funeral there in Hong Kong at the Jewish congregation that Robert attended regularly. So many of the friends that Robert had made during his time in Hong Kong attended the services to say goodbye to him. From there, Robert's casket was transported to the airport and flown back to New York. Bill had a second funeral service at the local Jewish temple in Greenwich, Connecticut, so all of Robert's friends and loved ones stateside could bid their farewells as well. Robert was laid to rest at the Riverside Cemetery in Saddlebrook, New Jersey, on November 18, 2003, the place where the Kissels had grown up. Robert's death is officially listed as having occurred on November 2, 2003. He was 40 years old. A few days before Christmas of that year, Andrew Kissel reached out to Lance Del Priore once again. This time, it was to send him holiday greetings. Lance was surprised, but glad to hear from him. 
He was able to express his condolences and how sorry he was that he didn't try to take more action when it came to his knowledge of what was going on between Nancy and his brother Mike. He told Andrew, he confessed, I knew that there was an affair going on and I knew it was serious, but I just wanted to stay out of it. Andrew Kissel really had no idea that there was a thing going on between his sister-in-law and Mike Del Priore and just how serious it was until it was much, much too late. Would it have made a difference if he had known any sooner? I don't know. I don't think so. Who would have thought that Nancy would murder Robert over that? No one could have seen that coming. And it also goes to show us that Robert, while he was confiding in some of his close friends and co-workers, including his private investigator Frank and even Nancy's friend Bryna, he wasn't really sharing much of this information with Andrew, his own brother. At least he wasn't until it was getting close to the end. So, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but in 1898, China leased Hong Kong to Great Britain for 99 years. The lease ended in July of 1997, but Hong Kong, while technically under Chinese rule, has allowed for Hong Kong to remain relatively autonomous when it comes to its own government and justice system. And there was an agreement made in 1997 that it would stay that way for 50 years until 2047. Then I guess maybe China will try to get Hong Kong's government more in line with socialism. But for now, Hong Kong and its justice system is pretty similar to the justice system that was used, is used by Great Britain. Nancy Kissel was taken into custody and charged with Robert's murder. She would be tried in Hong Kong's court, a first instance, high court, and the presiding judge would be Michael Lunn. Judge Lunn was born in South Africa. He went to school in England. He attended college in the United States. He was admitted to the bar in England where he was a barrister for a few years before moving to Hong Kong where he continued his career in law. Unfortunately for Nancy, Judge Lunn had a reputation for heavily favoring the prosecution side of the cases he presided over. So the majority of the time when the defense presented motions to dismiss evidence or have certain things thrown out, he almost never did it. The jury was made up of only seven people. In Nancy's case, her jury was composed of two women and five men. They were between the age of 30 and 60. They were all Chinese and they all spoke fluent English and all held college degrees. The prosecutor, there's a long title for it in Hong Kong. It's called the Government's Senior Assistant Director of Public Prosecutions, but we'll just call him the prosecutor. His name is Peter Chapman. He was the one that would be presenting the case against Nancy Kissel. He told the court that on Sunday, November 2nd, 2003, that Nancy had made and served her husband a milkshake that was spiked with a sedative or several sedatives, which caused Robert to eventually fall into a deep sleep that night. And as he lay sleeping, that she picked up a heavy, ornate statue of some sort and proceeded to bludgeon Robert about the head with it five times, mostly on the right side of his head. 
Nancy then followed up with a poorly executed attempt at a cover-up. And for the life of me, Dreamers, I do not know what Nancy Kissel thought she was going to do next. She had rolled her husband up into the rug. She had asked some maintenance workers to carry that rug down into the basement. And the thing is, the prosecution here is going to try to make the case for this killing having been something that Nancy premeditated. But there are a couple of things that I'm hung up on, and we're going to go through that. But this, this cover-up, rolling Robert into a rug and tucking him away in the basement, it's not exactly one of the best laid plans. In fact, it sounds like Nancy had no idea what she was going to do. She was going to take the stand and give her version of events, though I don't know how much weight any of us are going to give her story, but I will go through what she had to say. There are just a couple of things that have me questioning if there was a bunch of premeditation going on or not. And I will address the supposed spike milkshake and the other things that made Robert believe that he was being drugged. Because if she was, in fact, slipping him sedatives, then that would lend to the thought that Nancy was planning and premeditating something. But the prosecutor himself even said that the cover up was quote unquote ill conceived. He also pointed to an email that Nancy had sent out on November 4th, 2003, canceling some plans that she had, and he made the claim that this was proof of premeditation. However, this was two days after Robert's death. For me, the more chilling thing would have been for Nancy to have sent that email before Robert's death. She apparently wrote in it that Robert wasn't feeling well. No kidding, right? And she needed to take care of some things. So I don't see that email being this absolute proof of premeditation. It actually was probably one of the most truthful things Nancy had to say to anyone. Yeah, Robert wasn't feeling well. He was kind of sort of dead and she needed to take care of things kind of sort of like his corpse. I mean, she wasn't wrong, but I don't see it as lending to the idea that she planned this out before Robert's death. As for the motive, you can probably already guess that the prosecutor's theory is going to be that Nancy wanted Robert out of the way so she could carry on with her illicit affair with the cable guy. They had taken their affair to the next level when Nancy left Hong Kong during the SARS outbreak, and Nancy wanted to smoothly transition out of her marriage and into this new relationship and figured that the easy way out was to murder Robert. And while I'm not quite sure, I 100% believe that either, because from everything that I read, it seemed as though Robert was more than willing to step aside and continue to provide for Nancy and the kids if they proceeded to move forward with a divorce. In the book, A Family Cursed, it was said that Robert was even willing to go so far as to move out of their Hong Kong apartment so Nancy could move Mike Del Priore in just so Robert could have easy access to his children. That is how much Robert wanted this to go smoothly, to make it easy on the kids. But on the flip side of that, is it possible that maybe Nancy didn't want to be a divorcee? Maybe things were not going to be as easy peasy as we have been led to think Robert was going to make them. Because Nancy is going to go on to say some things about Robert that aren't too flattering but she will be the only one who would ever make the claim that Robert was anything less than a gentleman. Maybe Nancy wanted both of these men, her husband and her lover, pining after her. 
Maybe she wanted to string both of them along for as long as she could just to feed her own ego and narcissism. And there was probably this messed up side of Nancy that enjoyed the torment and pain that she was causing Robert. He noticed that she had grown cold and distant. And she had a reputation of being a bitch to just about everyone. Friends, family, domestic help. And her husband and kids were not excluded from that. And perhaps when Nancy saw those divorce documents come through the fax machine, maybe it was a massive blow. Like, who does Robert think he is trying to divorce me? I tend to think she enjoyed having him as her personal punching bag. If I had to guess why Nancy did the things that she did and the way that she did them, I'd probably pin it on her being a self-absorbed narcissist. The jury at trial was told about the spyware that Robert had installed on their home computer as well as Nancy's personal laptop towards the beginning of 2003. A search of Robert's desk at his office at Merrill Lynch revealed dozens of emails that he had printed out. There were correspondences between Nancy and Mike Del Priore. The two of them over and over again professed their love for one another. Yeah, Robert printed them out at work and he tucked them away into his desk. So the prosecution was also going to contend that Nancy killed Robert for financial gain because he had upwards of $5 million in multiple life insurance policies. And again, I'm not so sure how much that plays into it for me because Robert was certainly poised to earn much, much more than that and not too far in the distant future either. In other words, this isn't a situation where Robert would have been worth more dead than alive. It was quite the opposite. But I guess if Nancy wanted Robert out of the way, $5 million in insurance would be kind of a bonus, I suppose. The evidence also showed that Robert had been speaking to a divorce attorney as early as three months before he died. Of course, he did everything without Nancy's knowledge, And I can't help but think that those divorce papers getting faxed to Robert's home fax machine rather than his work fax machine was the breaking point for Nancy that seemed to be the thing where she snapped. As selfish and self-centered as she had been behaving with her affair, Nancy just couldn't handle the fact that he was the one filing for a divorce. The evidence showed that Robert had spoken to the attorney about custody, financial matters, life insurance, and making changes when it came to all of those things, but Robert never got to it. And the one bit of information that has me thinking that Nancy learning of the divorce by way of the misdirected facts is the fact that Robert had sent an email to Andrew telling him that he was going to have a sit-down talk with Nancy, he was going to tell her that he was going to file for divorce, and he was going to do it on November 2nd, the last day that Robert was known to have been alive. It came out in court that the day after Nancy killed Robert, that would have been Monday, November 3rd, and Nancy specifically told one of her housekeepers to stay out of the master bedroom. The Kissels had two housekeepers. That day, Nancy spent the day shopping, purchasing all new linens, a comforter set, and brand new pillows for the master bedroom. From there, she made an inquiry with the management office of the building that she lived in in regards to tenant storage and availability. 
She asked if there were any more storage units available, and she was told that there were not. Now, in one of the most unbelievable parts of this story, okay, so you know Robert is rolled up inside of that rug, and it was wedged between the sofa and the living room wall for about two days. It was on the second day, close to the third day, maybe November 5th or so, that Nancy contacted the apartment maintenance staff and requested help with moving a rolled up rug into their basement storage. Now, Maximina, remember, she ended up calling Nancy's friend, Brian, telling her that she was very, very concerned about this rug. Well, at the time, Nancy made arrangements for it to be taken down by the apartment maintenance workers. Maximina said that the rug seemed really awkward and bulky. But Nancy had explained to her that she had rolled up the old bedding into it, all the sheets and comforter and the pillows and such. And she just needed it out of the way for now. She would deal with it later. The maintenance personnel who carried that rug down the stairs for Nancy later said that it smelled so disgusting, worse than spoiled fish. On Thursday, November 6th, Robert had been a no-show at work since Monday. So someone from Merrill Lynch called Nancy to try and ascertain what had happened to him. She explained that they had gotten into a huge fight and that he left the apartment and has not seen or heard from him since. So now Nancy is aware that Robert's absence is being noticed and this might start be getting investigated. So as soon as she got off the phone with that Merrill Lynch employee, Nancy went ahead and went down to her local police station to file a report. But she would not be filing a missing persons report. No, she was filing a formal complaint that she had been physically and sexually abused by Robert. And Nancy, when she went there, she wasn't alone. At some point, her dad had flown out to Hong Kong, I guess, for moral support. It was that very same day that Nancy filed her complaint that Robert's colleague David filed the missing persons report, which is what prompted the Hong Kong police to send investigators to the Kissel residence. The police had shown up at Nancy's doorstep just before 11 p.m. on the night of November 6th. By then, Robert had been missing for four days. Well, as we know, decomposing for four days. Nancy was told that they were there to search the apartment, which she allowed them to do. But when they asked if she had a storage unit anywhere in the building, at first, she said that she didn't. But then Nancy, perhaps it was finally dawning on her that she wasn't going to be able to squirm her way out of this. She asked the officers if she could speak to her dad in the other room. Nancy and her father retreated to a bedroom and closed the door. Before long, the police officers began hearing crying. But it wasn't Nancy crying. It was her father. Whatever it was that she was saying to him, it caused him to break down into sobs and tears. Nancy reluctantly handed over the key to the storage unit and told the police which one was hers. The officers made their way down into the basement, and before they even got to the door, they were hit with a distinctive odor of human decomposition. Now, these officers didn't really do this the way that we might do it here. Obviously, they have a dead body, so usually, you know, here in the United States, they're going to call out the forensics people and the coroner. But these officers, they went ahead and did the unrolling of the rug themselves. Inside the rug was a sleeping bag, 
and inside the sleeping bag was Robert. Later on, the housekeeper would confirm that what Robert was dressed in is what he would normally be wearing to bed, boxers and a t-shirt. I want to stop here and talk a little bit about the drugs that were found or supposedly found in Robert's system. The book kind of glosses over it a little bit. It said the toxicology report found a mixture of five different hypnotics and antidepressants in Robert's stomach and in his liver. The prosecution told the court that the types and amounts of drugs that were found were enough to cause Robert to go unconscious. But I found an article in a Chinese publication called East, South, West, North from July of 2005 that questioned the accuracy of the toxicology reports conducted on Robert's body. The article read, it's kind of awkward because it's translated, but I'll read it as it was written. It said, quote, report fails to show amount of sedatives and impact on late banker court hairs. Despite unusual combination of sedatives, antidepressants, and tranquilizers found in the body of murdered Merrill Lynch banker Robert Kissel, the government's laboratory analysis provides no indication of the amount of drugs present when they were consumed, nor the route of the administration the court heard in the Kissel murder trial. Part of a report offered by the defense was read out in court. It criticized the government's analysis as being insufficient in documenting the precise amount and the effects the drugs may have had on the victim. The government's drug analyst expert, Cheng Kok Choi, who earlier said the combination of drugs he found in Kissel's stomach was the most unusual he had seen in his 10 years of forensic experience, said that he could not comment on the quantity of drugs or whether they would produce a significant pharmacological effect. The prosecution has stated that Nancy gave Robert a milkshake with these drugs in them, and once he passed out, she used that ornate statue thing to beat him to death. Nancy's claim is that Robert was drunk and assaulted her when she refused to have sex with him. They did look at some of Robert's hair, and as they analyzed it, they found that either he was taking or was regularly given sleeping pills for as many as three months before he was killed. It seems as though Robert was the one taking the sleeping pills on his own. However, as for the alcohol, there was a relatively low level found in Robert's system, so he wasn't drunk as Nancy had claimed, nor was there any cocaine. While the expert, Cheng Kok Choi, did say that it would have been better to analyze samples from Robert's urine or from his eyeball, he was not given these samples to look at, so he didn't have the opportunity to do it he would have been able to better determine how much alcohol would have been in Robert's system had those samples been tested. And I think I mentioned earlier that Robert was not the only one served a milkshake that evening. One of the Kissel's neighbors, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Tanzer, was also offered a milkshake, which he drank, despite thinking that it had a weird taste to it. When Tanzer got home that night, his wife could tell that something was really wrong with him. He was very warm, his face and his body had become flushed, and he had a difficult time staying conscious. He was slurring his words, and his body temperature was so warm that he ended up finishing all three of the tubs of ice cream that the couple had in their freezer. Eventually, Andrew Tanzer fell asleep on the sofa, and when he woke up the next morning, 
he had absolutely no memory of anything that had happened shortly after he drank that milkshake. The five drugs that were found in Robert's system were Rohypnol, Loravan, Stilnox, Axetol, and Amitriptyline, all of which are prescription drugs used to treat things such as depression, insomnia, and anxiety. Given all together, too high of a dose will cause a person to become drowsy, dizzy, disoriented, and suffer from amnesia. And in the event of an overdose, it can cause a person to slip into a coma or can cause death. Alcohol will amplify all of these effects. Nancy Kissel had prescriptions for all of the above listed drugs. It was also noted that Nancy should not have been prescribed so many different sedatives. Usually a patient is only given one, but she had several, three of them to be exact, the Stilnox, the Loravan, and the Amitriptyline, which were prescribed to her on October 30th, 2003, three days before Robert's death. Robert had a prescription of his own, It was for a recurring back problem that he had suffered, but that drug was not detected in the toxicology report. Other evidence discovered in the Kissel apartment included blood spatter in the master bedroom, all of it tested and found to be a match to Robert Kissel. Also discovered was the murder weapon. It was some sort of ornament. I called it a statue. The book, I think, called it a heavy figurine or some kind of piece of artwork on a, it had a base. They were made out of metal and it was a set of two and one of them was broken. It had been completely detached from its pedestal and it was determined that it would have taken a tremendous amount of force for those parts to have become separated. Both of the figurines were tucked away inside a box and they were taped together with some other boxes that were sealed. And Nancy's fingerprints were all along the adhesive side of the tape that was around these boxes. Also found back down into the storage area along with Robert's body were the bloody bedding items, bloody pillows, and bloody clothing. All the blood tested matched Robert. Now, I wasn't exactly clear exactly what day Nancy was taken into custody, but it doesn't seem like that she was brought in or arrested that night that the police had found her husband rolled up in that rug in the basement. Because the day after the murder, on Friday, November 10th, in the morning, Nancy had checked herself into the hospital on the University of Hong Kong campus complaining of emotional distress. The hospital staff described Nancy as shaken up, crying, virtually incoherent. She had some superficial scrapes or chafing on her lip and on her chest and on her knee. And upon further examination, Nancy was also found to be suffering what is described as muscle strains. In the book, it was akin to the kinds of discomfort you might have if you exercise too hard and you had sore muscles or something like that which might happen if you bludgeon your husband and roll him up into a carpet and move him around the house. One of the witnesses called to the stand was Robert's sister, and she came all the way from Seattle, Washington, to take the stand and testify against Nancy. 
Through her tears, she testified that Nancy was the only one who had anything to gain from Robert's death, who had a net worth of almost $20 million at the time of his death. She said that her brother opened up a little bit to her about the troubles he was having in his marriage, but he always had somewhat of a positive outlook. He thought that if he worked harder at being everything Nancy wanted, that things would improve. Andrew Kissel did not attend the trial in Hong Kong, but he provided a statement in which he said that he had only recently learned of Nancy's affair and that his brother had been floating the idea of divorce with him since some time in October. So it wasn't too long before Robert was actually murdered that he was talking divorce to his family. I've mentioned that Robert's private investigator and friend Frank, I've talked about him several times throughout the story. He too would be called to testify at Nancy's trial, along with one of his investigators, a guy named Rocco Gata. Rocco was the one who Frank assigned to surveil Nancy's Stratton Mountain, Vermont home when Robert hired the firm and told them of his suspicion surrounding his wife possibly having an affair. Rocco had staked out the Kissel home a total of four times in June and July of 2003. Every time Rocco had his eyes on the Kissel home, along with his video camera, he captured a work van, the same work van, a blue one, that parked close but not too close to the Kissel house. He filmed as he watched a man get out of the van and walk towards the Kissel house. The van and the man could not be identified, but further investigation into the Del Priore brothers' businesses revealed that the van was the same make, model, and color as one associated with the company, Prime Focus Communications, and it was registered to Mike Del Priore, Nancy's alleged lover. Frank Shea was called to the stand, and as he sat there, he couldn't help but notice how different Nancy looked. A year and a half or so after Robert's murder had passed and so much had changed about her. He'd only ever seen her and known her to be very well put together, beautiful, blonde, always so elegant, not a hair out of place. But by this time, it was the first time he realized that Nancy Kissel wasn't even a real blonde. Her hair was dark, dull, long and stringy. And she had been on bail, too. So I think she could have done more to keep fixing herself up. But to me, maybe it kind of sounds like she was trying to do that Jodi Arias librarian look. If you look at pictures of her, you kind of see sort of a similar thing going on. She had on a plain black dress, a tiny bit of makeup, and no jewelry. Frank Shea figured that Nancy was going for the sympathy. And he wondered if it would work. Frank told the court how he came to know Robert. It all had to do with his wife possibly having an affair and that he was afraid it was ramping up when Nancy went back to Vermont because of SARS. At the beginning of September, when Frank traveled to Hong Kong to see Robert, he testified how he was told that Robert was beginning to suspect that his wife was slipping him drugs or trying to poison him by putting things into his favorite scotch. Frank told the court how Robert described how the drinks were making him feel and he encouraged Robert to take samples to be tested, but Robert never did it, and Frank believed it was because he refused to believe that Nancy would do something like that to him. Nancy's attorney in questioning Frank attempted to insinuate that the reason why Robert never took the samples of the scotch or his urine to be tested was because Robert would have tested positive for the use of illicit drugs such as cocaine, and it would have put his whole livelihood at risk. Frank brushed off the insinuation that Robert sorted cocaine, 
It just wasn't his thing. There was never any proof. There were no illicit drugs found in Robert's system. The housekeeper I had mentioned earlier, Maximina, she was called to the stand and she was able to provide a bit of insight into the ins and outs of the Kissel marriage because she was there every day witnessing it. She recalled how Nancy told her not to do any housework or clean cleaning in her master bedroom on the morning of November 3rd, the day after Robert was killed. Maximina said the last time that she ever saw Robert was in the afternoon of November 2nd, around 5 p.m., At 6 p.m., she saw that the Kissel's bedroom door was slightly ajar, and Nancy told her to make sure that she kept the kids quiet because Robert had laid down to take a nap. Eventually, Maximina went home for the evening. The next day, this was the morning of the 3rd, when Nancy told Maximina to skip the cleaning of the bedroom, she noticed that there was a fresh wound on Nancy's hand. Nancy explained that she had burned herself while she was making herself something to eat. At the same time, Nancy informed Maximina that she and Robert had gotten into a fight the night before and that he had reserved a hotel room for himself and would be staying there for a while. The next day, Nancy had a task for Maximina. She asked her to go down to the storage unit and empty it of all the boxes and line them up in the hallway outside of their apartment, which Maximina did. A little while later, Nancy told Maximina that her ribs were hurting and asked her if she could go to the medical supply store and get her a support brace to wear, which she did. Nancy also asked her to make a stop at the home improvement store and purchase a length of rope, which she also did. Maximina was shown some still photographs taken of some of the security cameras that surrounded the apartment building that showed Nancy bringing in brand new rugs and some pieces of luggage. The timestamp on those photos were 2 a.m., and Maximina positively identified Nancy as the person being in the pictures. Maximina was asked several questions regarding her observations when it came to the Kissel marriage. What did she see? What did she notice about the couple? And she testified that when she was hired, it felt as though Nancy and Robert were very happy. But within three years, their relationship had deteriorated. No more were the sweet loving gestures shared between husband and wife. There was no more closeness, no more kisses. They didn't even really look at each other. Maximina described Robert as a very kind and loving husband and father, very devoted to his family. She described Nancy as a decent person, but with an incredibly fierce temper. And the ability to forgive was not in her wheelhouse. If you did something wrong... Or if you crossed Nancy, she would hate you forever. There were no second chances. Maximina testified that she was unaware of any drinking or drug problem on the part of Robert Kissel, and she had never observed any kind of abuse or evidence of abuse at any point in time on Nancy Kissel. Maximina also told the court about all the new rugs that Nancy had put in the living room. They were there by November 5th, which was Wednesday, three days after Robert was killed. She liked the new rugs a lot, and that is when she noticed that the old rug was rolled up and stuffed behind the living room sofa. It looked really bulky and awkwardly shaped and lumpy, and she just got this really weird feeling about the rug. And when she asked Nancy about it, she told Maximina that she had rolled up her old bed linens and pillows and had replaced them with new ones. Well, it goes without saying that Maximina did not think Nancy was being truthful, 
So the rest of the day was very, very stressful as she continued to wonder what was going on with that rolled up rug every time she glanced at it. At some point during the day, she contacted the Kissel's other housekeeper and confided in her that she thought Nancy had done something to harm Robert, but the other housekeeper told her that she just did not think that that was possible. Later on that same day, Maximina didn't see, but she could hear the sound of heavy-duty packaging tape being used, a lot of it, to wrap that awkward, rolled-up rug prior to the maintenance workers coming to take it down into the Kissel's storage room and in the basement. When the workers got there, they loaded the rug into a dolly and they wheeled it out of the apartment. In fact, it was one of Nancy and Robert's sons who helped by holding open the front door as they wheeled it through. And he even cringed and complained about how terrible the rug had smelled as they rolled it past him. Maximina took the boy by the arm to move him away from the door and the rug. Deep down, I'm fairly certain she knew what was inside. And she couldn't help but notice how awful the rug smelled too. Maximina was shown pictures of the rug as it lay in the storage unit, and she not only identified it, but she also identified the rope that was wrapped around it along with the packaging tape. And it was a rope that she was instructed to purchase at the hardware store for Nancy the day before. Under cross-examination, it seemed as though Nancy's defense attorney was attempting to portray Maximina as a disgruntled worker who disliked Nancy and was all too happy to testify as to all these negative things about her former employer. Maximina was asked if she ever thought of Nancy as a friend, and she said that she did not. She said that she had to be honest that she was not happy at the job because Nancy Kissel had such a terrible attitude, but she needed it. In fact, and this is really bizarre and it's outlined in the Book of Family Curse, Maximina testified to the court that in April of 2003, she actually reached a breaking point and decided to quit. However, Nancy Kissel all but refused to allow Maximina to leave the apartment. So she retreated to a bedroom and she did not leave the room for a total of five days. She didn't leave. She didn't eat. She didn't work. She just locked herself in the room. I guess basically leaving all the housework and caring for the children up to Nancy. But really, the woman was basically being held hostage, which is completely and totally weird. And I don't even know how that was allowed to happen. Eventually, after five days, Nancy was able to sweet talk Maximina, I guess, and convinced her to stay. The second housekeeper, a sister-in-law of Maximina's, her name is Connie, she was able to provide firsthand testimony as to the frequent and often extended visits Mike Del Priore made to the Kissel home in Vermont during the time that Nancy and the kids were there while the SARS outbreak was happening. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. As to the story Nancy told Connie when it came to the events of November 2nd, 2003, the night Robert was killed, Nancy related to her that she had gotten into a physical altercation with Robert that he had been drinking, and in addition to that, she said that he had been snorting cocaine. The fight escalated to a point that Robert hauled off and kicked Nancy in the ribs. After that, he stormed out of the apartment. Nancy attributed his violence and anger to pressures at work. Nancy showed Connie some of the superficial injuries that she had sustained, and that included some abrasions on her knee and on her hand. 
When it came to the summer of 2003, while Nancy was at the vacation home in Vermont, the visits from Mike Del Priore became more and more frequent, particularly in the months of June and July. Connie was told that he was there to do repairs to the various electronic things around the house, TV, internet, etc. However, most of his visits were at night, which Nancy explained to Connie was the only time that he could make it because of his busy work schedule and that they were lucky that he was able to make it at all. There was a time when one of the Kissel children had come into Connie's room looking for Nancy. Connie was confused because normally Nancy would have been in her room in bed. Connie went with a child to go looking for mom, but they eventually heard Nancy and the voice of a man down in the living room. So Connie told the child that her mom was downstairs and to just go ahead and go back to bed. Also during that summer, Mike started bringing his own daughter over to the Kissel home to have play dates with Nancy's daughter. Then Connie would be told to supervise the kids and Nancy and Mike would go off somewhere else. For the most part, Connie minded her own business. She did not pry. She did not know what Mike and Nancy were doing. And most of the time, when Connie went to bed, Mike would still be there at the house. Connie had nothing but nice things to say about Robert Kissel. She described him to the court as kind and a devoted husband and father, always very calm and even-tempered. When it came to drinking, she knew him to drink occasionally or socially. In the five years that she had been employed with the Kissels, she never saw Robert have too much to drink, nor did she believe he would ever use drugs. His wife, his kids, and his job were very important to him. At the same time, Connie also had nice things to say about Nancy, to a point where she felt like Nancy treated her like family and believed her to also be a very devoted parent. But she did have to admit that after the birth of the Kissel's third and youngest child, that she did see a dramatic shift in Nancy's overall personality. Her temper became short and very intense. She did not have the same perky, upbeat personality that she once had. It was very noticeable. So dreamers, this to me might actually bolster Nancy's friend Bryna's theory that Nancy may have suffered bouts with postpartum depression following the birth of their third child, which in recent years has been taken into serious consideration as an element of a possible insanity defense in court. But at trial, Nancy did not put forth that defense. But for us, listening to the story, it might be something to consider as we make our way through this. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to wrap up part three of this series right here for now. I didn't think I would start to see the things that would have us leaning slightly in favor of Nancy Kissel. But like I told you in part one, I'm going along with the story and learning as you learn. So I am starting to see things slightly differently and I'm excited to see what comes next. So I will get going on part four very soon. I do know that for some reason, part one seems to be missing from some of your feeds, particularly on Apple Podcasts. I've contacted the hosting service to see if they can fix it on their end, because on my end, it says the episode's been published. 
I'm gonna try to fix it. So hang on, I'm working on it. I will be back soon with part four. I hope all of you have a wonderful week. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.